Chapter Fifteen of Little Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crowgirl. Little Men by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Fifteen. In the Willow. The old tree saw and heard a good many little scenes and confidences that summer, because it became the favorite retreat of all the children, and the willow seemed to enjoy it, for a pleasant welcome always met them, and the quiet hours spent in its arms did them all good. It had a great deal of company one Saturday afternoon, and some little bird reported what went on there. First came Nan and Daisy with their small tubs and bits of soap, for now and then they were seized with a tidy fit and washed up all their dolls' clothes in the brook. Asia would not have them slopping round in her kitchen, and the bathroom was forbidden, since Nan forgot to turn off the water till it overflowed and came gently dripping down through the ceiling. Daisy went systematically to work, washing first the white and then the colored things, rinsing them nicely and hanging them to dry on a cord fastened from one barberry bush to another, and pinning them up with a set of tiny clothespins Ned had turned for her. But Nan put all her little things to soak in the same tub, and then forgot them while she collected thistle-down to stuff a pillow for Semiramis, Queen of Babylon, as one doll was named. This took some time, and when Mrs. Giddy-Gaddy came to take out her clothes, deep green stains appeared on everything, for she had forgotten the green silk lining of a certain cape, and its color had soaked nicely into the pink and blue gowns, the little chemises, and even the best ruffled petticoat. "'Oh, me, what a mess!' sighed Nan. "'Lay them on the grass to bleach,' said Daisy, with an air of experience. "'So I will, and we can sit up in the nest and watch that they don't blow away.' The Queen of Babylon's wardrobe was spread forth upon the bank, and turning up their tubs to dry, the little washerwomen climbed into the nest and fell to talking, as ladies are apt to do in the pauses of domestic labor. "'I'm going to have a feather-bed to go with my new pillow,' said Mrs. Giddy-Gaddy, as she transferred the thistle-down from her pocket to her handkerchief, losing about half in the process. "'I wouldn't. Aunt Jo says feather-beds aren't healthy. I never let my children sleep on anything but a mattress,' returned Mrs. Shakespeare Smith decidedly. "'I don't care. My children are so strong they often sleep on the floor and don't mind it,' which was quite true. "'I can't afford nine mattresses, and I like to make beds myself.' won't tommy charge for the feathers maybe he will but i shan't pay him and he won't care returned mrs g taking a base advantage of the well-known good nature of tea bangs i think the pink will fade out of that dress sooner than the green mark will observed mrs s looking down from her perch and changing the subject for she and her gossip differed on many points and mrs smith was a discreet lady never mind i'm tired of dolls and i guess i shall put them all away and attend to my farm i like it rather better than playing house said mrs g unconsciously expressing the desire of many older ladies who cannot dispose of their families so easily however but you mustn't leave them they will die without their mother cried the tender mrs smith let them die then i'm tired of fussing over babies and i'm going to play with the boys they need me to see to em returned the strong-minded lady Daisy knew nothing about women's rights. She quietly took all she wanted, and no one denied her claim, because she did not undertake what she could not carry out, but unconsciously used the all-powerful right of her own influence to win from others any privilege for which she had proved her fitness. Nan attempted all sorts of things, undaunted by direful failures, and clamored fiercely to be allowed to do everything that the boys did. 
they laughed at her hustled her out of the way and protested against her meddling with their affairs but she would not be quenched and she would be heard for her will was strong and she had the spirit of a rampant reformer mrs bear sympathized with her but tried to curb her frantic desire for entire liberty showing that she must wait a little learn self-control and be ready to use her freedom before she asked for it nan had meek moments when she agreed to this and the influences at work upon her were gradually taking effect she no longer declared that she would be an engine driver or a blacksmith but turned her mind to farming and found in it a vent for the energy bottled up in her active little body it did not quite satisfy her however for her sage and sweet marjoram were dumb things and could not thank her for her care she wanted something human to love work for and protect and was never happier than when the little boys brought their cut fingers bumped heads or bruised joints for her to mend up seeing this mrs joe proposed that she should learn how to do it nicely and nursie had an apt pupil in bandaging plastering and fomenting the boys began to call her dr giddy and she liked it so well that mrs joe one day said to the professor fritz i see what we can do for that child she wants something to live for even now and will be one of the sharp strong discontented women if she does not have it don't let us snub her restless little nature but do our best to give her the work she likes and by and by persuade her father to let her study medicine she will make a capital doctor for she has courage strong nerves a tender heart and an intense love and pity for the weak and suffering mr bear smiled at first but agreed to try and gave nan an herb garden teaching her the various healing properties of the plants she tended and letting her try their virtues on the children in the little illnesses they had from time to time she learned fast remembered well and showed a sense and interest most encouraging to her professor who did not shut his door in her face because she was a little woman she was thinking of this as she sat in the willow that day and when daisy said in her gentle way i love to keep house and mean to have a nice one for demi when we grow up and live together nan replied with decision well i haven't got any brother and i don't want any house to fuss over I shall have an office, with lots of bottles and drawers and pestle things in it, and I shall drive round in a horse and chaise, and cure sick people. That will be such fun. Ugh! How can you bear the bad-smelling stuff and the nasty little powders and castor oil and senna and hive syrup? cried Daisy, with a shudder. I shan't have to take any, so I don't care. Besides, they make people well, and I like to cure folks. Didn't my sage tea make Mother Bear's headache go away, and my hops stop Ned's toothache in five hours? So now shall you put leeches on people and cut off legs and pull out teeth asked daisy quaking at the thought yes i shall do everything i don't care if the people are all smashed up i shall mend them my grandpa was a doctor and i saw him sew a great cut in a man's cheek and i held the sponge and wasn't frightened a bit and grandpa said i was a brave girl how could you i'm sorry for sick people and i like to nurse them but it makes my legs shake so i have to run away i'm not a brave girl sighed daisy well you can be my nurse and cuddle my patients when i have given them the physic and cut off their legs said nan whose practice was evidently to be of the heroic kind ship ahoy where are you nan called a voice from below here we are aye aye said the voice and emile appeared holding one hand in the other with his face puckered up as if in pain oh what's the matter cried daisy anxiously a confounded splinter in my thumb can't get it out take a pick at it will you nanny it's in very deep and i haven't got any needles said nan examining a tarry thumb with interest take a pin said emile in a hurry 
No, it's too big, and hasn't got a sharp point. Here Daisy, who had dived into her pocket, presented a neat little housewife with four needles in it. You are the posy who always has what we want, said Emile, and Nan resolved to have a needle book in her own pocket henceforth, for just such cases as this were always occurring in her practice. Daisy covered her eyes, but Nan probed and picked with a steady hand, while Emile gave directions not down in any medical work or record. Starboard now, steady boys, steady, try another tack. Heave ho, there she is. Suck it, ordered the doctor, surveying the splinter with an experienced eye. Too dirty, responded the patient, shaking his bleeding hand. Wait, I'll tie it up if you've got a handkerchief. Haven't, take one of those rags down there. Gracious, no, indeed, they're doll's clothes, cried Daisy indignantly. Take one of mine, I'd like to have you, said Nan. And swinging himself down, Emile caught up the first rag he saw. It happened to be the frilled skirt, but Nan tore it up without a murmur, and when the royal petticoat was turned into a neat little bandage, she dismissed her patient with the command, Keep it wet and let it alone. Then it will heal right up and not be sore. What do you charge? asked the Commodore, laughing. Nothing. I keep a spensary. That's a place where poor people are doctored free gratis for nothing, explained Nan with an air. Thank you, Dr. Giddygaddy. I'll always call you in when I come to grief. And Emile departed, but looked back to say, for one good turn deserves another, your duds are blowing away, doctor. Forgiving the disrespectful word, duds, the ladies hastily descended, and gathering up their wash, retired to the house to fire up the little stove and go to ironing. A passing breath of air shook the little willow, as if it laughed softly at the childish chatter which went on in the nest, and it had hardly composed itself when another pair of birds alighted for a confidential twitter. "'Now I'll tell you the secret,' began Tommy, who was swelling visibly with the importance of his news. "'Tell away,' answered Nat, wishing he had brought his fiddle. It was so shady and quiet here. "'Well, we fellows were talking over the late interesting case of circumstantial evidence,' said Tommy, quoting at random from a speech Franz had made at the club, "'and I proposed giving Dan something to make up for our suspecting him, to show our respect and so on, you know, something handsome and useful that he could keep always and be proud of.' "'What do you think we chose?' "'A butterfly net. He wants one ever so much,' said Nat, looking a little disappointed, for he meant to get it himself. "'No, sir, it's to be a microscope, a real swell one, that we can see what do you call em's and water with, and stars and ants' eggs and all sorts of games, you know. Won't it be a jolly good present?' said Tommy, rather confusing microscopes and telescopes in his remarks. "'Tip-top! I'm so glad!' "'Won't it cost a heap, though?' cried Nat, feeling that his friend was beginning to be appreciated. "'Of course it will, but we're all going to give something. I headed the paper with my five dollars, for if it is done at all, it must be done handsome.' "'What? All of it? I never did see such a generous chap as you are,' and Nat beamed upon him with sincere admiration. "'Well, you see, I've been so bothered with my property that I'm tired of it, and don't mean to save up any more, but give it away as I go along.' and then nobody will envy me or want to steal it, and I shan't be suspecting folks and worrying about my old cash, replied Tommy, on whom the cares and anxieties of a millionaire weighed heavily. Will Mr. Bear let you do it? He thought it was a first-rate plan, and said that some of the best men he knew preferred to do good with their money instead of laying it up to be squabbled over when they died. Your father is rich. Does he do that way? I'm not sure. He gives me all I want to know that much." I'm going to talk to him about it when I go home. Anyhow, I shall set him a good example. And Tommy was so serious that Nat did not dare to laugh, but said respectfully, 
"'You will be able to do ever so much with your money, won't you?' "'So Mr. Bear said, and he promised to advise me about useful ways of spending it. "'I'm going to begin with Dan, and next time I get a dollar or so I shall do something for Dick. "'He's such a good little chap, and only has a cent a week for pocket money. "'He can't earn much, you know, so I'm going to kind of see to him.' "'And good-hearted Tommy quite longed to begin.' I think that's a beautiful plan, and I'm not going to try to buy a fiddle any more. I'm going to get Dan his net all myself, and if there is any money left, I'll do something to please poor Billy. He's fond of me, and though he isn't poor, he'd like some little thing from me, because I can make out what he wants better than the rest of you. And Nat fell to wondering how much happiness could be got out of his precious three dollars. So I would. Now come and ask Mr. Bear if you can't go in town with me on Monday afternoon, so you can get the net while I get the microscope. Franz and Emile are going, too, and we'll have a jolly time larking around the shops. The lads walked away, arm in arm, discussing the new plans with droll importance, yet beginning already to feel the sweet satisfaction which comes to those who try, no matter how humbly, to be earthly providences to the poor and helpless, and gild their might with the gold of charity before it is laid up where thieves cannot break through and steal. "'Come up and rest while we sort the leaves. It's so cool and pleasant here,' said Demi, as he and Dan came sauntering home from a long walk in the woods." "'All right,' answered Dan, who was a boy of few words, and up they went. "'What makes birch leaves shake so much more than the others?' asked inquiring Demi, who was always sure of an answer from Dan. "'They're hung differently. Don't you see the stem where it joins the leaf is sort of pinched one way, and where it joins the twig it's pinched another? This makes it waggle with the least bit of wind, but the elm leaves hang straight and keep stiller. "'How curious! Will this do so?' and Demi held up a sprig of acacia, which he had broken from a little tree on the lawn, because it was so pretty. No, that belongs to the sort that shuts up when you touch it. Draw your finger down the middle of the stem and see if the leaves don't curl up, said Dan, who was examining a bit of mica. Demi tried it, and presently the little leaves did fold together, till the spray showed a single instead of a double line of leaves. I like that. Tell me about the others. What do these do? asked Demi, taking up a new branch. Feed silkworms. They live on mulberry leaves, till they begin to spin themselves up. I was in a silk factory once, and there were rooms full of shelves all covered with leaves, and worms eating them so fast that it made a rustle. Sometimes they eat so much they die. Tell that to Stuffy. And Dan laughed as he took up another bit of rock with a lichen on it. I know one thing about this mullein leaf. The fairies use them for blankets, said Demi, who had not quite given up his faith in the existence of the little folk in green. "'If I had a microscope, I'd show you something prettier than fairies,' said Dan, wondering if he should ever own that coveted treasure. "'I knew an old woman who used mullen leaves for a nightcap because she had face-ache. She sewed them together and wore it all the time.' "'How funny! Was she your grandmother?' "'Never had any. She was a queer old woman, and lived alone in a little tumble-down house with nineteen cats. Folks called her a witch, but she wasn't, though she looked like an old rag-bag.' She was real kind to me when I lived in that place, and used to let me get warm at her fire when the folks at the poorhouse were hard on me. Did you live in a poorhouse? A little while. Never mind that. I didn't mean to speak of it. And Dan stopped short in his unusual fit of communicativeness. Tell about the cats, please, said Demi, feeling that he had asked an unpleasant question and sorry for it. Nothing to tell, only she had a lot of em and kept em in a barrel nights, and I used to go and tip over the barrel sometimes and let em out all over the house, and then she'd scold and chase em and put em in again, spitting and yowling like fury. 
"'Was she good to them?' asked Emmy, with a hearty child's laugh, pleasant to hear. "'Guess she was. Poor old soul, she took in all the lost and sick cats in the town, and when anybody wanted one, they went to Marm Weber, and she let em pick any kind and colour they wanted, and only asked ninepence. She was glad to have her pussies get a good home. "'I should like to see Marm Weber. Could I, if we went to that place?' "'She's dead. All my folks are,' said Dan, briefly. "'I'm sorry.' And Demi sat silent a minute, wondering what subject would be safe to try next. He felt delicate about speaking of the departed lady, but was very curious about the cats, and could not resist asking softly, "'Did she cure the sick ones?' "'Sometimes. One had a broken leg, and she tied it up to a stick, and it got well, and another had fits, and she doctored it with yards till it was cured. But some of them died, and she buried them, and when they couldn't get well, she killed them easy.' "'How?' asked Emmy, feeling that there was a peculiar charm about this old woman, and some sort of joke about the cats, because Dan was smiling to himself. A kind old lady who was fond of cats told her how, and gave her some stuff, and sent all her own pussies to be killed that way. Marm used to put a sponge wet with ether in the bottom of an old boot, then poke puss in head downwards. The ether put her to sleep in a jiffy, and she was drowned in warm water before she woke up. I hope the cats didn't feel it. "'I shall tell Daisy about that. "'You have known a great many interesting things, haven't you?' asked Emmy, "'And fell to meditating on the vast experience of a boy "'who had run away more than once "'and taken care of himself in a big city. "'Wish I hadn't, sometimes. "'Why, don't remembering them feel good?' "'No. "'It's very singular how hard it is to manage your mind,' said Demi, "'clasping his hands round his knees "'and looking up at the sky as if for information upon his favourite topic.' devilish hard no i don't mean that and dan bit his lips for the forbidden word slipped out in spite of him and he wanted to be more careful with demi than with any of the other boys i'll play i didn't hear it said demi and you won't do it again i'm sure not if i can help it that's one of the things i don't want to remember i keep pegging away but it don't seem to do much good and dan looked discouraged yes it does you don't say half so many bad words as you used to and aunt joe is pleased because she said it was a hard habit to break up did she and dan cheered up a bit you must put swearing away in your fault drawer and lock it up that's the way i do with my badness what do you mean asked dan looking as if he found demi almost as amusing as a new sort of cockchafer or beetle "'Well, it's one of my private plays, and I'll tell you, but I think you'll laugh at it,' began Demi, glad to hold forth on this congenial subject. "'I play that my mind is a round room, and my soul is a little sort of creature with wings that lives in it. The walls are full of shelves and drawers, and in them I keep my thoughts, and my goodness and badness and all sorts of things. The goods I keep where I can see them, and the bads I lock up tight, but they get out, and I have to keep putting them in and squeezing them down, they are so strong.' the thoughts i play with when i am alone or in bed and i make up and do what i like with them every sunday i put my room in order and talk with the little spirit that lives there and tell him what to do he is very bad sometimes and won't mind me and i have to scold him and take him to grandpa he always makes him behave and be sorry for his faults because grandpa likes this play and gives me nice things to put in the drawers and tells me how to shut up the naughties hadn't you better try that way it's a very good one and Demi looked so earnest and full of faith that Dan did not laugh at his quaint fancy, but said soberly, "'I don't think there is a lock strong enough to keep my badness shut up. Anyway, my room is in such a clutter, I don't know how to clear it up. You keep your drawers in the cabinet all spandy nice. Why can't you do the others?' "'I ain't used to it. 
Will you show me how? And Dan looked as if inclined to try Demi's childish way of keeping a soul in order. I'd love to, but I don't know how, except to talk as Grandpa does. I can't do it good like him, but I'll try. Don't tell anyone. Only now and then we'll come here and talk things over, and I'll pay you for it by telling all I know about my sort of things. Will that do? And Dan held out his big, rough hand. Demi gave his smooth little hand readily, and the league was made, for in the happy, peaceful world where the younger boy lived, lions and lambs played together, and little children innocently taught their elders. "'Hush,' said Dan, pointing toward the house, as Demi was about to indulge in another discourse on the best way of getting badness down, and keeping it down. And peeping from their perch, they saw Mrs. Joe strolling slowly along, reading as she went, while Teddy trotted behind her, dragging a little cart upside down. "'Wait till they see us,' whispered Demi, and both sat still as the pair came nearer. Mrs. Joe so absorbed in her book that she would have walked into the brook if Teddy had not stopped her by saying, "'Marmar, I want to fiss.' Mrs. Joe put down the charming book which she had been trying to read for a week, and looked about her for a fishing pole, being used to making toys out of nothing. Before she had broken one from the hedge, a slender willow-bough fell at her feet, and looking up she saw the boys laughing in the nest. "'Up! Up!' cried Teddy, stretching his arms and flapping his skirts as if about to fly. "'I'll come down and you come up. I must go to Daisy now.' And Demi departed to rehearse the tale of the nineteen cats, with the exciting boot-and-barrel episodes. Teddy was speedily whisked up, and then Dan said, laughing, "'Come, too. There's plenty of room. I'll lend you a hand.' Mrs. Joe glanced over her shoulder, but no one was in sight, and rather liking the joke of the thing, she laughed back, saying, "'Well, if you won't mention it, I think I will.' and with two nimble steps was in the willow. "'I haven't climbed a tree since I was married. I used to be very fond of it when I was a girl,' she said, looking well pleased with her shady perch. "'Now you read if you want to, and I'll take care of Teddy,' proposed Dan, beginning to make a fishing rod for impatient baby. "'I don't think I care about it now. What were you and Demi at up here?' asked Mrs. Joe, thinking from the sober look on Dan's face that he had something on his mind." "'Oh, we were talking. I'd been telling him about leaves and things, and he was telling me some of his queer plays. Now then, Major, fish away!' And Dan finished off his work by putting a big blue fly on the bent pin which hung at the end of the cord he had tied to the willow rod. Teddy leaned down from the tree, and was soon wrapped up in watching for the fish which he felt sure would come. Dan held him by his little petticoats, lest he should take a header into the brook, and Mrs. Joe soon won him to talk by doing so herself.' "'I am so glad you told Demi about leaves and things. "'It is just what he needs, and I wish you would teach him and take him to walk with you. "'I'd like to. He's so bright, but—but what? "'I didn't think you'd trust me. Why not? "'Well, Demi is so kind of precious and so good, and I'm such a bad lot, "'I thought you'd keep him away from me. "'But you're not a bad lot, as you say, and I do trust you, Dan, entirely, "'because you honestly try to improve and do better and better every week.' Really? And Dan looked up at her with the cloud of despondency lifting from his face. Yes, don't you feel it? I hoped so, but I didn't know. I have been waiting and watching quietly, for I thought I'd give you a good trial first, and if you stood it, I would give you the best reward I had. You have stood it well, and now I'm going to trust not only Demi, but my own boy to you, because you can teach them some things better than any of us. Can I? And Dan looked amazed at the idea. 
Demi has lived among older people so much that he needs just what you have, knowledge of common things, strength, and courage. He thinks you are the bravest boy he ever saw, and admires your strong way of doing things. Then you know a great deal about natural objects, and can tell him more wonderful tales of birds and bees and leaves and animals than his story-books give him, and being true, these stories will teach and do him good. Don't you see now how much you can help him, and why I like to have him with you? But I swear sometimes, and might tell him something wrong. I wouldn't mean to, but it might slip out, just as Devil did a few minutes ago, said Dan, anxious to do his duty and let her know his shortcomings. I know you try not to say or do anything to harm the little fellow, and here is where I think Demi will help you, because he is so innocent and wise in his small way, and has what I am trying to give you, dear, good principles. It is never too early to try and plant them in a child, and never too late to cultivate them in the most neglected person. You are only boys yet. You can teach one another. Demi will unconsciously strengthen your moral sense, you will strengthen his common sense, and I shall feel as if I had helped you both. Words could not express how pleased and touched Dan was by this confidence and praise. No one had ever trusted him before, no one had cared to find out and foster the good in him, and no one had suspected how much there was hidden away in the breast of the neglected boy, going fast to ruin, yet quick to feel and value sympathy and help. No honor that he might earn hereafter would ever be half so precious as the right to teach his few virtues and small store of learning to the child whom he most respected, and no more powerful restraint could have been imposed upon him than the innocent companion confided to his care. He found courage now to tell Mrs. Joe of the plan already made with Demi, and she was glad that the first step had been so naturally taken. Everything seemed to be working well for Dan, and she rejoiced over him because it had seemed a hard task, yet working on with a firm belief in the possibility of reformation in far older and worse subjects than he, there had come this quick and hopeful change to encourage her. He felt that he had friends now, and a place in the world, something to live and work for, and, though he said little, all that was best and bravest in a character made old by a hard experience responded to the love and faith bestowed on him, and Dan's salvation was assured. Their quiet talk was interrupted by a shout of delight from Teddy, who, to the surprise of everyone, did actually catch a trout, where no trout had been seen for years. He was so enchanted with his splendid success that he insisted on showing his prize to the family before Asia cooked it for supper. So the three descended and went happily away together, all satisfied with the work of that half-hour. Ned was the next visitor to the tree, but he only made a short stay, sitting there at his ease while Dick and Dolly caught a pail full of grasshoppers and crickets for him. He wanted to play a joke on Tommy, and intended to tuck up a few dozen of the lively creatures in his bed, so that when Bangs got in he would speedily tumble out again, and pass a portion of the night in chasing hopper-grasses round the room. The hunt was soon over, and having paid the hunters with a few peppermints apiece, Ned retired to make Tommy's bed. For an hour the old willow sighed and sung to itself, talked with the brook, and watched the lengthening shadows as the sun went down. The first rosy color was touching its graceful branches when a boy came stealing up the avenue, across the lawn, and spying Billy by the brookside, went to him, saying in a mysterious tone, "'Go and tell Mr. Bear I want to see him down here, please.' Don't let anyone hear. Billy nodded and ran off, while the boy swung himself up into the tree and sat there looking anxious, yet evidently feeling the charm of the place and the hour. 
In five minutes Mr. Bear appeared, and stepping up on the fence, leaned into the nest, saying kindly, "'I'm glad to see you, Jack. But why not come in and meet us all at once? I wanted to see you first, please, sir. Uncle made me come back. I know I don't deserve anything, but I hope the fellows won't be hard upon me.' Poor Jack did not get on very well, but it was evident that he was sorry and ashamed, and wanted to be received as easily as possible, for his uncle had thrashed him well and scolded him soundly for following the example he himself set. Jack had begged not to be sent back, but the school was cheap, and Mr. Ford insisted, so the boy returned as quietly as possible and took refuge behind Mr. Bear. I hope not, but I can't answer for them, though I will see that they are not unjust. I think, as Dan and Nat have suffered so much being innocent, you should suffer something being guilty, don't you? asked Mr. Bear, pitying Jack, yet feeling he deserved punishment for a fault which had so little excuse. I suppose so, but I sent Tommy's money back, and I said I was sorry. Isn't that enough? said Jack, rather sullenly, for the boy who could do so mean a thing was not brave enough to bear the consequences well. No. I think you should ask pardon of all three boys, openly and honestly. You cannot expect them to respect and trust you for a time, but you can live down this disgrace if you try, and I will help you. Stealing and lying are detestable sins, and I hope this will be a lesson to you. I'm glad you're ashamed. It's a good sign. Bear it patiently, and do your best to earn a better reputation. I'll have an auction, and sell off all my goods dirt cheap, said Jack, showing his repentance in the most characteristic way. I think it would be better to give them away, and begin on a new foundation. Take, honesty is the best policy for your motto, and live up to it in act and word and thought, and though you don't make a cent of money this summer, you will be a rich boy in the autumn, said Mr. Bear earnestly. It was hard, but Jack consented, for he really felt that cheating didn't pay, and wanted to win back the friendship of the boys. His heart clung to his possessions, and he groaned inwardly at the thought of actually giving away certain precious things. Asking pardon publicly was easy compared to this, but then he began to discover that certain other things, invisible but most valuable, were better property than knives, fishhooks, or even money itself. So he decided to buy up a little integrity, even at a high price, and secure the respect of his playmates, though it was not a saleable article. "'Well, I'll do it,' he said, with a sudden air of resolution, which pleased Mr. Bear. "'Good, and I'll stand by you. Now come, and begin at once.' And Father Bear led the bankrupt boy back into the little world, which received him coldly at first, but slowly warmed to him, when he showed that he had profited by the lesson, and was sincerely anxious to go into a better business with a new stock-in-trade. End of chapter 15 Recording by Crowgirl Caracrow.blogspot.com